Well, hello, everybody. So um, I, that's it. You just prayed that uh, my words today would be the Lord's words. Amanda prayed that same thing for me. I also hope that that will be the case today. I have a feeling it'll be somewhere in between my words and his words. Um, because this thing that I'm going to talk to you about today, this is just something that I think the Lord has been trying to teach me over the last year or so. And it's a work in progress because, A, I don't, I'm going to talk to you about something. I'm going to, I'm going to frame it like this is what you should do. And this is true. But I'm going to go ahead and be upfront about the fact that I don't always practice this in the best way in my life because it's very difficult. It's a very difficult thing to practice effectively, to put into, um, to make a reality in your life. And so because that it's a very difficult thing, I'm just not very good at it yet. Um, I hope that I live a long-ish life, not too long, but longer than I've lived so far. And I hope that it will become much more of a reality in my life as I get older. So what I'm going to talk to you about today is what I learned about Jesus by pretending to kill my friends. What I mean by that is that uh, over the last year or so, about a year and, year and three months, I started practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And if you talk to me for any amount of time, I'm going to force you to listen uh, to me talk about it. So a lot of you probably already know that. And also, the, I think this might be the only way that I could force Amanda to listen to me talk about it. So that's part of why I'm talking about this today. But I do have a good reason for talking about it. Uh, so before I get into that, I just want to tell you about a little bit about what it is. It's a martial art. It's a sport and a fighting style. Um, it's ground fighting, similar to wrestling. And the object is to force your opponent to submit by joint lock, by breaking one of their joints, or um, choking them until they either pass out or submit. In the sport, the, you hopefully everybody submits before any of that happens. I do not want to hurt anybody. Uh, and nobody else that does this with me does, wants to hurt anybody either. So as a sport, you submit quickly and hopefully nobody gets hurt. Um, as a martial art, obviously, if it's a self-defense situation, those things are the object in order to get yourself out of danger. I have no idea how I feel about any of that. I don't ever want to hurt anybody out in the world either. Um, and so I practice the sport. So let's be clear about that up front. This is a sport that I do. Um, it's, jiu-jitsu means the gentle art. And the reason they call it that is it's actually not very gentle, but it's one of the only martial arts, maybe the only one that I know of, that you can practice full speed and full intensity without permanently damaging the person that you're practicing with. Um, and so that's why they call it the gentle art. So pretty quickly after I started doing this, I noticed something. Um, and first let me say, this is, a, this is the type of thing that people start doing and they practice for a really, really long time before anybody that knows what they're talking about would call them good at it. Uh, people practice three, four, five years, and people that have been practicing 10 years don't consider those people really good at it. You get somewhat proficient in the beginning, and then people spend a whole lifetime trying to get really good at it. And so um, I started to notice fairly quickly that I ended up underneath people a lot, just laying there, getting squashed, and I could do nothing about it. And I, I wrestled a lot when I was growing up. 
I am a somewhat strong person and I just was helpless. I was under these people and they had so many skills and so skills that were so highly developed that I just laid under them suffering. Um, now we wear uh, what's called a gi. My friends like to refer to it as my karate costume because <laughs> they figured out fairly quickly that that would bug me. And so it will never die, I would imagine. But um, we wear a gi and so it's kind of like, uh, if you've ever seen karate or taekwondo or anything like that, it's kind of like that except much thicker and it's made of cotton and uh, once people start to sweat, it's just basically like a wet rag. And when somebody's laying on top of you, it is over your face, and it is maybe not literally suffocating you, but I can't imagine there's much that feels closer to suffocating than this. And so you have to come to terms fairly quickly with the fact that you're just going to lay there under people and essentially suffocate. And so I found it incredibly uncomfortable. It's claustrophobic, and it's just because you feel helpless, um, that's not a feeling I like. I do not like feeling helpless in life, but I was. And so I decided that I was going to, since I couldn't really do anything about it, I was going to try to accept it. And I realized that what I was doing is I was accepting a level of discomfort that I, previous to that point in my life, would never have accepted. Um, you know, we... We don't have air conditioning in the gym that I practice in, and so it's 90 degrees. So there's just that. You are in a, a gym that's 90 degrees, you can almost see the humidity in the air, and you're doing a very intense physical activity. I once asked uh, somebody, you know, like, what, should I get a lighter gi because I'm, I feel like I'm overheating a lot. And he said, no, you should, you should keep that one or get a heavier one, or, um, you know, just be tougher. I was like, okay. One time somebody walked in and said, why isn't there air conditioning in here? And somebody walked by and said, because we don't want it. And I realized that there's a lot of things going on in this room with these people where they're trying to grow used to discomfort. They're trying to make it their friend. And it's because they've realized that discomfort sharpens them. And a lot of these are people who aren't believers. And so to them, they've just realized that discomfort is a, discomfort is a valuable tool in regular life. But I realized that discomfort is a valuable tool in your walk with Jesus and in life. So I started thinking about this. And of course, many of you that know me know that I'm sort of, I'm sort of an obsessive. Uh, and what I mean by that is that once I find something interesting to me, I obsess about it until I know as much about it as I possibly can know. And once I realized this intriguing idea that there, people are seeking discomfort, I decided to try to seek discomfort myself. And so I laid underneath people and I suffered and I just tried to breathe. And eventually I found that the discomfort started to become mundane. It started to become much more acceptable to me. It was just a part of what I was doing and at some point it ceased to bother me. There were moments when it was particularly intense and it bothered me. Uh, but those moments, every time they happened, just gave me an opportunity to push the limit of my acceptance of the discomfort that I was feeling. So um, we have discomfort in all our lives, and we have to deal with it. It's, there's no option about it. You don't get a choice. 
Discomfort is part of life, right? So um, here's some examples. And these are actually things that have happened to, to me pretty recently. I think, when, I think when I decided to talk about this here, I think God, God said, you know, I'm going to make sure you really understand what you're talking about. And so he did a couple of the things that really upset my apple cart in life. Um, he just kind of, I, I think he orchestrated some circumstances so that, so that when I went into this, I would be fully prepared to know what I was talking about. Um, and not just from somebody laying on top of me trying to suffocate me, but from things that are much more difficult to handle than that, uh, like changing job circumstances and changing life circumstances. Um, your family can change. One day you can find out that you don't have a job. One day you can find out that you have a new boss and you're not going to like the person very much. You're not going to like working with them. Everything changes in an instant some days. Uh, having kids is uncomfortable. Having kids is wonderful most of the time. The other times it is highly uncomfortable. You have to get used to not having your own way a lot. You have to get used to people throwing your towel on the floor every single morning, even though you've told them over and over, this is my one towel, I use it for a week, please do not throw my towel on the floor. But every morning you come into the bathroom and your towel's on the floor. Um, kids just have a way of exposing your selfishness to you. And they do it in a way that really, I don't, I don't know that there's anything else on planet Earth that can do that. And so you have to just accept that for the next 18 to 35 years, <laughs> you're going to be uncomfortable. And you chose this. So in most cases, I think, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a level of discomfort with kids that is just astounding. Uh, all of a sudden, one day, you can be a healthy person, and then you are injured or sick. One day healthy, next day sick. So acute illnesses come on in an instant, and your life is completely different. Or that happens to a family member, and your life is completely different. And your life goes from going to soccer games and doing fun things and going to school and going to work to spending most of your time in a hospital room. That is uncomfortable. That is something that, uh, you know, even though it is highly uncomfortable, you have to accept it. You just have to lay there and accept it, that this is your, this is your life, your new life for now. Um, some people have sicknesses that just go on their whole lives. They're not acute. They're not like, uh, hey, surprise, you're sick. It's more like you've been sick your whole life. And it's kind of a low-grade sickness, but it's always there. And so those people learn to deal with discomfort in a way that I really find admirable because they just have to get up every day, and they think today's the same as yesterday. And with a lot of people like that, the sickness just kind of fades into the background and it becomes something they deal with. And other people say, I don't know how you can do this. And they think, well, this is just my life. You know, this is, this is just what my life is like. I don't know why I would be upset about it at this point. But uh, injury and sickness can, can make you very uncomfortable in life. Um, I want to talk about addiction for a minute because we have a lot of people around us here that in the, at the greenhouse that are addicted or are recovering from addiction. And I've thought a lot about this, uh, just from relationships in my life and from trying to help people here that need help or want it. And I've tried to figure out what is it that causes people to go back to, to drugs and alcohol again and again and again and again and again. 
and you know, they, they get well, and then they go back to it. They get well for three days, and they go back to it. They get well for six months, and they go back to it. They get well for six years, and they go back to it. And I think a big part of it is that they are faced with a choice to either choose long-term discomfort or short-term relief, instant relief in some cases. They have an escape hatch that they can hit, and they can relieve the discomfort of being clean, and it never really goes away, but they can relieve that in an instant. And they choose comfort in a moment instead of discomfort for a lifetime. Now, what they sometimes don't realize is that if they choose discomfort for a lifetime, they can have their family, they can have friends, they can have a relationship with the Lord that is whole and complete. They can have a job. They can have all the things in life that a lot of us really take for granted. They can have those things, even though they had lost them in some cases, what seemed like forever. Gone forever, they get them back, and they are faced with a choice to either keep those things by choosing long-term discomfort or lose those things by choosing instant relief. And the pull to relief, to comfort, is so strong that most of the time, I think, they choose instant relief, instant comfort. So I think what we can learn from that, if you don't have a problem with substances, if you're not addicted to anything, is that in every situation in your life where you need relief, where you're uncomfortable, and there's an option for instant relief, I think humans are pretty much geared to take that. We want to take it. But it takes patience and tenacity, and really the main thing it takes is the Holy Spirit's work in your life to every single day get up and choose discomfort. Sometimes it's a low-grade discomfort. Sometimes it's bigger than that. But you have to choose discomfort every day. And all of the things that I mentioned, really, everybody that has kids, you have to get up and choose to be a dad that day, every single day. You have to get up and choose to be a mom and you're choosing long-term discomfort over short-term relief. Dads walk out all the time. They're choosing instant relief from that pressure and discomfort over long-term discomfort for the sake of others and themselves. So, what are some examples of the Lord using discomfort to sharpen people? I wanna read Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. It sounds like our gym, actually. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So this is the fourth chapter of Jonah. There's only four. I'm pretty sure there were only four in my Bible, (laughs) which means that Jonah has already been eaten by a giant fish. He's already been swallowed by a whale or a fish. We don't know, but he's already spent time in the belly of a fish. That's uncomfortable. And he still shows up and he gives Nineveh the message, but he's still being a baby about it. And so God does a simple thing. He makes Jonah uncomfortable just to remind him that any comfort you have and anything you have in life, I give. So I'm going to make you uncomfortable and you're going to listen to me for a minute because he says, um, he compares the the plant to 120,000 people. Jonah cares about the plant, but he doesn't care about the 120,000 people and cattle. I don't know why they include, why, why God included that, but cows, I guess. So that's an example of the Lord using discomfort to change our hearts. Um, Acts 9. This is Paul. He's called Saul at this point. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So this is Saul, who is a Pharisee among Pharisees. And he's just traveling around, persecuting the people, of, uh, the, the people who are following Jesus. He's killing them and he's turning them into martyrs. He's doing it in horrible ways. Saul was really, I would say, you know, on, on average, a pretty horrible guy. But he was also a Pharisee, and so he probably, and, he, I, and he, I think he, he grew up in the higher ranks of the Pharisees. His father, I believe, was a, was a high-ranked Pharisee. And so you can bet that Paul, Saul, was used to a high level of comfort. He was probably among the more wealthy people in this time and place. And so he was probably used to a fair level of comfort. And all of a sudden... God says, okay, I need to get your attention, and so I'm going to make you very, very uncomfortable. I don't know about you, 
But if I lost my sight in a moment, even if Jesus didn't show up and speak to me when I couldn't see him, if I lost my hearing, if I lost any of my senses, I would be very upset. It would, it would upset me way more than most of the things that upset my apple cart. And so here's Saul. He can't see anything. And by the way, nobody told him he was only going to be without sight for three days. So I'm sure he's assuming, I guess this is my reality now for the rest of my life. Um, and so God made him very uncomfortable. God took his comfort away. Because let me tell you, when he lost his sight, none of the other comforts in life, none of the wealth, none of the power, none of the reverence that people gave him day to day mattered anymore. Those were all just little tiny things to him. And so the Lord speaks to him and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. To this point, Saul knew who Jesus was, but he thought he was just persecuting people who were, who were worshiping, um, you know, basically a dead person and calling them a god. But then he finds out in a moment, oh, not only was I persecuting these people who really are worshiping a god, the god, but I'm persecuting the god himself. I'm persecuting Jesus himself. And so what happens next is Saul turns into Paul and he plants all the churches in Asia, all the all the churches that receive letters, pretty much almost everything we know about what the Lord thinks from the New Testament came from him. And it was all because Saul had a conversion experience where God took his comfort away and said, all of that belongs to me, all of it. And I'm going to take it away. And then, by the way, I don't think Paul was ever comfortable again. He had to travel all over Asia. He didn't really have a home uh, other than the tents he made because he was what we call bivocational. But he also was in prison a whole lot. So it was almost like this day, the Lord was saying to him, I'm going to make you uncomfortable in this instant, but follow me and then I'll make you uncomfortable for the rest of your life. So I think that's kind of how the Lord works. And... Um, you know, that sounds kind of terrible. Why would anybody choose that? But let me tell you, it's kind of wonderful because not only is it good for us, but there's so much reward in following the Lord. If you follow the Lord, He will reward you. Maybe not with the things you think, but it's totally worth it. It's totally worth the discomfort. Just like kids are totally worth the discomfort. Having kids is very uncomfortable, but it's totally worth it. So I propose that all of us seek discomfort daily in our lives. Um, when I started getting squashed by people who I could not stop on a daily basis and suffocated, and I realized it was good for me, I realized it made me tougher, and I realized it made me appreciate discomfort, I started seeking other ways to find discomfort in my life. And also something my friends will tell you, by the way, is that I hate discomfort. I say no to things all the time because I think they're gonna make me uncomfortable. I, I think they're gonna cause my schedule to be disrupted or cause my 
situation at home to be disrupted, where I'm not going to be in the place that I want to be, and I'm not going to be surrounded by the people I want to be surrounded by. But slowly over time, the Lord has taught me that I need to say yes to things, even though they make me uncomfortable. And I don't always do that. In fact, always, I always say no, right? <laughs> My friends call me the instant no. But I come back because I consider what the Lord wants. And usually he, uh, he makes me say yes. And so I find reward in that. I'm usually glad I did. So I am seeking discomfort every day in my life a little more. I'm not ready to go whole hog here. I still like to have comfort in my life. I still like to be in the place I want to be. Um, why should we choose discomfort? Because that's what Jesus did. I want to read Isaiah 53 to you. This is a little long. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief." When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. So, Jesus was in, com was in community with the Father and the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> living in what is arguably the most comfortable place in all of existence, heaven. They're together. They need nothing else fully self-sufficient, fully satisfied. And yet, the Lord came to planet Earth, and it was God's will to send him here. So not only planet Earth, by the way, way more uncomfortable than heaven with the Trinity all there, satisfied and complete. But not only did he choose planet Earth, a very uncomfortable place, 
He chose a very uncomfortable time and place. He chose a time when there's no carpet, there's no walking into buildings with air conditioning, there's no cars, there's no, you know, there's no computers. Oh. Wow. So he chose a very uncomfortable time and place. Everywhere they walked, you walk from your, to the shed of your house. You walk out the back door of your house to the shed. Your feet are so dirty, you have to wash them when you get back inside. It's hot. Not only that, but he went to a time and place where the cultural group he was born into was being actively oppressed by another cultural group, the Romans. They were, they were ruling over the Jews at that time and ruling over them in a way that was just kind of horrible. But that's where he chose, and that's when he chose. So it's almost like he couldn't have chosen a more uncomfortable time and place to be born into. He was born without beauty or desirability. We heard that in Isaiah 53. So um, I think it's kind of universally accepted that in life, maybe not everywhere, but in a lot of places, uh, people that are tall, smart, really good looking, um, that are born with physical attributes or emotional ones or intellectual ones that put them ahead of the curve as far as humanity. Those people sometimes have an easier time in life, um, especially when it comes to gaining comfort. You know, There's studies that show that tall people, I am not one of these people, tall people in the business world just do a lot better because they're tall. Um, and I admit, a tall person is, when I look up at them, they're impressive. So physical traits and physical desirability, along with other forms of desirability, are um, coveted. But that's not how Jesus came here. He came here, I don't remember what it says. It says, we, he had no, I think he had no form that we should consider him. It basically says he had nothing that would make us look at him, that would make us notice him. So he chose to just come back plain. I don't think the movies that have Jesus in them that depict his life where he's like this white guy with blue eyes and a majestic beard, and I don't think any of those are true. I think, I think you would have, you and I probably would have walked right by him on the street had we seen him. And that's how he chose to came back, come back, to come here. Um, not only did he carry people's, uh, people's, they despised him, but he also carried the grief and the sorrow of the world at all times. I think he was born with it. I think he carried it his whole life. I think he carried the grief and the sorrow of the world. He chose it. He chose to walk around every day with skin on instead of the way he was supposed to be, carrying the grief and the sorrows of the world. And the reason is because he, he bore our sin. So he had to carry our grief and our sorrows. He was a man of sorrows his whole life. That's how he chose to be. It was God's will that he would be that way. He was essentially homeless for a long period of time. Matthew 8.20 says that uh, he had no place to lay his head. He, somebody said, I want to follow you. And he said, hey, uh, you know I'm homeless, right? I don't, you, 
I don't have a place to lay down at night. I'm always on the move. Do you want that? And the guy said, I do want to follow you, but let me go back and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the, let the dead bury their own dead. So as soon as this guy heard how Jesus lived, he was out. He was out. And so Jesus chose to live a life where for a, a good portion of it, he was homeless. He actually started out homeless. You know, he started out in Bethlehem. He, he was homeless there. His whole family was. He ends up homeless. That's what he chose. That's what, it was the Lord's will for him. That's what the, that was what the, what the Lord wanted for him. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jonah didn't cause the plant to wither up and die. Saul didn't cause himself to go blind. And Jesus, once he got here, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So what does that mean for you and me? That when we come to uncomfortable points in our life, when our circumstances are crushing us, who is it? If you belong to the Lord, I think it's him. And I don't think it's because he wants to punish you. I think it's because he loves you and he wants you to see him and he wants you to be changed. Discomfort is a great refiner and we should all be seeking things that refine us in life because the Lord is putting those things out there in front of us all the time. Hey, this will refine you. This will refine you. This will refine you. Pick it up. And we just walk right by them because they seem difficult or they seem like they will make us less happy. But I got a little secret to tell you. For us in this room, life is not about seeking happiness. Happiness is something that comes along sometimes and you should enjoy it when you have it. But that is not why you're here. You are not here to be happy. You're here to be his all the way. You're here to give your whole life to him, no matter what that means. No matter if that means that you're going to travel through Asia your whole life and get put in prison all the time. No matter if that means you have to go and, and warn a people that you care nothing about. No matter if that means that you're addicted and you have to choose discomfort every single day when you get up so that you can know the Lord's will for your life and so that you can find out the person that he means for you to be. No matter if it means that your kids are going to throw your towel on the floor every single day of your life, no matter what it means. So what do we do next? I am not, just newsflash here, I am not going to go home today and change all the things in my life that make me comfortable. In fact, I'm probably not even going to start, stop saying no to stuff. But over the last 10 years, the Lord has taught me, even though it's my impulse to say no, that I should reconsider. And I do a lot of the time. My friends pressure me to a lot of the time because they're teaching me. Um, so I'm not suggesting that we get rid of, that we sell everything we own and we take a vow of poverty. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I am suggesting that we each begin to seek discomfort in small ways every single day of our lives. Um, some ways you can do that. I let people lay on top of me and suffocate me like four or five hours a week. The AC broke in my car earlier this year. I realized when it, the first really hot day, remember we had spring for like a week and then all of a sudden it was like Arizona. 
that day I realized that my AC in my car was broken. And at first I didn't have time to fix it, but then I remembered that guy that asked about the AC in the gym and the other guy that said, we don't want it. And I thought, okay, this might be a good chance to increase my tolerance of discomfort. So for the whole summer I've been riding around super sweaty and I probably smell bad all the time. But I didn't fix it. I might fix it at some point. But for this summer, the Lord taught me that it's okay to not have air conditioning every moment of your life because life is not about you being comfortable. I mean, just by the way, everybody, nobody else has air conditioning. They have it here. We have it in Western Europe. We have it in a few other places. But all over the world, if they have cars, they don't have air conditioning. They're fine. So I'll be fine. Who love, me who loves comfort will be fine. And so that's just a small way that I can, <clears throat> that I can seek physical discomfort. Emotional discomfort. Changing circumstances are going to come in your life. And this is maybe the hardest one for me. Physical is easy. I can go without AC. It's not a big deal. Emotional discomfort is not easy for me. When my circumstances change, my whole way of looking at life changes. The way I treat my family changes. Everything changes. I become a mess when my life circumstances change. But if you can embrace those things, then they will, make, they will increase your tolerance for discomfort. They will make you more likely to pick up one of those things that God put in front of you that refined you, that's going to refine you. Because if discomfort doesn't bother you so much, you're more likely to say yes to the things that he wants to do in your life that refine you but make you uncomfortable. So embrace the emotional discomfort of changing circumstances in your life. They are a gift to you. Intellectual discomfort. This is a minefield. I'm going to try to be really careful here. A lot of us have, everybody has opinions, right? A lot of us have very strong opinions in several areas. Um, you see it on Facebook a lot. That's all I'll say, okay? But I'm going to tell you that if you have really strong opinions and you'll tell them to anybody who will listen in any area of life, I have this, by the way, you're going to alienate people. A lot of things, half people believe them and half people don't. So when you voice those opinions in a loud way that's not gentle and doesn't have the love of Jesus sewn into the words, then you're saying, essentially, I'm okay with this 50% of the people never listening to another word I say. And that includes when I try to tell them about the gospel. And newsflash, by the way, the other 50%, it probably makes you less likely to ever be able to communicate, communicate the gospel to them too. So depending on what you say in life, depending on what your opinions are, what your passions are, you may have to choose between those, between being an effective communicator of whatever you're, whatever you're passionate about in life or being an effective communicator of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has the power to save, turns people into completely different people, ones that follow the Lord for their whole lives. The gospel gives each of us the ability to change a little part of humanity in an expo exponential way. If I lead somebody to Jesus, 
they might lead two people to Jesus, and those two people might lead two, pe- lead two people to Jesus. And when you get further and further out, it turns into a sea of humanity. And so when you insist on voicing your opinions in a not-so-gentle way, you might be choosing between those opinions and a sea of humanity that could have been saved but isn't. Now, there's a lot of theological issues, and I've said before I'm no theologian. But I do know that, that voicing your opinions in a way that isn't loving is um, it's likely to, to decrease your ability to communicate the gospel. Spiritual discomfort. We are supposed to be discipling people, and we are supposed to be being discipled by other people. All of that. It's super uncomfortable, okay? And by the way, if there's anybody in this room that I am, that I help or disciple in any way, I don't want you to hear what I'm about to say as a commentary on what you should do differently to not upset me. I'm just trying to communicate that discipling people is uncomfortable sometimes. People show up at your house whenever they want. And if you're somebody like me, your first impulse is, oh, great. Usually I sit down with that person and I'm so glad they came. Um, Your time is not always your own. Your resources are not always your own. People, when you're discipling them, take from you. And that is the way it's supposed to be. Because when you're being discipled by somebody else, newsflash, you're taking. There's some people in your lives that you neither really take nor give from, or you do it in a way that's, that achieves equilibrium. But discipleship relationships in both directions are take and give, and if you're being discipled, you're the taker. If you're discipling, you're the giver. But that's why you're supposed to be doing both, being discipled and discipling, because then you achieve equilibrium in the other direction. If you only disciple people, then you're only being taken from if you disciple people only, then you're, or if you are being discipled only, then you're only taking. But if you're doing both, you achieve equilibrium this way, and then you also achieve equilibrium with the people that you're really neither discipling nor being discipled by. I would call those like lateral relationships. But the give and the take, the, give, the take is, is good for me. I like taking. The give is, is uncomfortable. It's not something that uh, is easy to do in life. So seek the spiritual discomfort of discipling people because it's hard and inconvenient. The Lord does not always desire us to be comfortable due to our circumstances. What he wants from us is for us to realize that he is the great comforter and that he wants us to draw our comfort from him. Even if we have no comfort from our circumstances in life ever again, we should still have comfort because he is the comforter. He is the one who gives us comfort. And when he takes away our comfort, he wants us to find it in him. That's a pretty good signal that he wants you to find it in him. He doesn't want you to pine to have it back. He doesn't want you to, to do everything you can to get that comfort back when it's either taken away by circumstances or taken away by him. He wants you to turn to him.